thank you for leading us in worship this morning, and thank you, thank you for uh, leading us to the throne of God's grace. It is a privilege to have everybody with us today. I do want to just uh, mention one thing. I, when Jerry was making the announcements, he's correct. Uh, it is getting crowded in here, and I love that, and I want it to continue to happen. And uh, as we continue to grow, uh, God will continue to provide and bless. He has already blessed us more than what we deserve. And actually, uh, we started back together meeting in person back in June. And we have been blessed because during that time period, we have had no outbreaks at all where uh, anyone has been infected with this coronavirus from here at church. And not all churches have been able to say that. Uh, we've not had to shut down service. We did have to scale some stuff back out of precaution uh, on one occasion. But the reality is we've been very much protected, and we're grateful for that. Uh, I would love to tell you that we're going to have the tape down next Sunday on these pews. However, um, we are uh, we are exercising probably more caution than what we need, but we would rather do that than to do something that might compromise what has taken place. I will say part of the concern for us, we did meet as a board and specifically talk about this. Uh, there are so many people in town that were at some sort of spring break function. And there was uh, some fear that maybe some of the students might bring stuff back. So we're just going to wait a few more weeks before we make a decision on that. So uh, we still ask you to still respect all the social distancing stuff that we've put in place. So uh, at this time, I see y'all patiently waiting back there. Thank you. After I bragged on myself last week because I'm remembering to send the kids out to Children's Church. The kids can go to Children's Church. You see the workers over here on my left and your right. So... About uh, two months ago, I asked one of our interns if he would be willing to speak for me on Palm Sunday. And of course, I am very grateful to have some of the best interns that Southern Wesleyan University has to offer. In fact, I would say that our denomination has to offer. And many of you have already met Isaac, but Isaac is going to be sharing the message this morning. Um, and Isaac is very gifted. He is a blessing from God. And I know that God is going to speak to you through him this morning. So Isaac, I invite you to come at this time and ask you to share the word of God to the people. Would you welcome Isaac? Good to see you. I realize he just uh, called me a blessing, but I'll have you know. Uh, Isaac in scripture in the Hebrew means he laughs or laughter, and that might be more approximating what you'll hear today. But I pray that the Lord will bless it uh, nonetheless, even in my uh, wickedness and uh, vile nature that you also share. Daily and Lee, those were very good songs. Thank you so much for those. Uh, I, I like them because they point the worthiness to Christ and Christ alone. It is something that is harder and harder to find uh, nowadays um, in, in our music uh, and in our pulpits. And so I, I, I welcome that. Uh, and I thank you so much for that um, because it, it uh, does my soul uh, good to hear. Um, yeah, whether it's Southern Gospel, um, what is it? He was on the cross, I was on his mind. Or uh, the hymn, uh, like a rose trampled on the ground, he took the fallen thought of me above all. 
How dare we, how dare we? It is the glory and righteousness of Christ alone that is vindicated on the cross, not my worth and not your worth. And, and I understand the, the haste to think that way. You know, it's, it's like, Jesus died for me? Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died for me? I must be worth something. No. You're worth nothing apart from him. The message of biblical Christianity cannot stop halfway. It cannot stop at Jesus loves me or, or Jesus died for me even. It is Jesus died for me so that I might make him, his glory, his righteousness, his holiness known among the nations. But anyway, thank you for the music. Um, before I, I begin, I do want to give a short thank you to uh, you all. I, I love you very much, and you have um, come alongside me in my ministry. Um, you know my theology, you know my virtues at this point. Um, and it, I, you, you, because you know that, you know that it is harder and harder to find uh, commonplace now in, nowadays uh, with those virtues that I share, that we share. So I thank you for uh, giving me a place to retreat and rest my head in commonplace with other believers and in fellowship. But that said, let's continue. Uh, if you'll open your Bibles and stand, please, uh, and turn to Mark 11. In reverence to the reading of the word, and if you'll continue standing after, uh, I'll, I'll pray. We're looking at Mark 11, verses 1 through 11. The triumphal entry. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to, him, uh, said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back there immediately. And they went away, and they found a colt, tied it at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it. And he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. Thank you for all your many blessings, Lord. Thank you for this church. Thank you for your word. Thank you for what, for what you did at the cross, Lord. Thank you for the ramifications of this triumphant entry that you made this day. I pray, um, I pray for Jonathan Heron as he brings the word at his church for the first time as pastor. Um, 
And I, I pray that you bless both of our mouths with precision and accuracy according to the will of your word. We love you very much, Lord. Amen. So, there's a lot of scripture I'm going to be... Oh, you can sit. How long were you going to stand there? What a loyal congregation. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, but... <laughs> We're going to go on a, a brief little uh, walk today because it requires a lot of, uh, I don't want you to think of it as jumping around. I do want you to think of it as a walk because, you know, a lot of, when you jump around scripture, people will say you're, you're using scripture like a trampoline. But in this case, I want us to, I want us to take a walk together and we're going to visit uh, several different places in scripture. Uh, think of it that way because it, this entry is, is not just the importance is not just in the entry itself, but in the manner of the entry. Um, uh, that said, let's, let's go ahead and dive in here. We'll start with verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples. Bethpage means, um, what is it, house of unripe, unripened figs, and Bethany means house of sorrow. Uh, my mom's name is Bethany. No comment. Uh, just kidding, just kidding. Just kidding. Uh, but um, the, the importance here is, is the Lord's going to Jerusalem. He's going to the temple. Um, and and what, why is this significant? It's, it is the Lord returning to his house, essentially. If you look in, um, uh, well, you can stay in Mark. I'll, I'll jump around. Um, if you look in Malachi 3.1, this is after rebuking priests. It is the Lord of hosts speaking. Uh, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. So he's, he's going to the temple. He is fulfilling prophecy. And the cool thing is, is after this chapter 11, he actually goes to the temple, and that's when he you know, tosses the, the tables and things like that. You know? So he is, he is refining, that's for sure. Verse 2 through 6, uh, it, it begs certain questions. Um, what is the significance of the cult? Uh, what is the significance of a cult not being ridden? Or, hey, did Jesus just steal that cult? Um, you know, it's like you think this stuff when you read. But it, what is this, let's start. What is the significance of the cult? If you look at uh, Zechariah 9, 9, this is another fulfillment of prophecy. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Uh, First Kings uh, 133. And the king said to them, Take with you the servants of your Lord, and have Solomon my son ride on my own mule and bring him down to Gihon. So, so 
though we see the cult as often like a, a humble thing, it, it actually is an animal fit for a king. If you look through uh, biblical history, it's, it's not uncommon. Um, and you'll see uh, David and Solomon, they, they rode mules all the time. I mean, what is the though there is significance in the fact that this is the first time in Scripture you will see Christ riding opposed to walking. And, and I don't quite know what to make of that yet. Uh, I'm still thinking. But anyway, so I, I didn't prepare that. But, um, but what is the significance of a cult that has not been uh, ridden? It's like um, I had this cousin, Laura Mack, who got this brand new truck. And um, because, you know, it was, that's Laura Mack's truck. Don't touch it. I think I got a fingerprint once, and I, I, you, I was pretty much mayhem from those Allstate commercials. You know, mayhem incarnate. That's bit practically what I was, I was seeing, I think, in that instant. You don't, you don't touch Laura Max truck, you know, like, and, and so that's kind of how the, the king's uh, steed would be, or the, in this case, a donkey. Uh, it had to be unridden, uh, you know, you only the king rides his donkey or his steed in, uh, in these times, especially. Numbers 19.2 brings this um, uh, clarity. This is the statute of the law the Lord has commanded. Tell the people of Israel to bring you a red heifer without defect, in which there is no blemish, and on which a yoke has never come. Deuteronomy 21.3, and the elders of the city that is nearest to the slain man shall take a heifer that has never been worked and that has not pulled in a yoke. So there is significance in uh, the purity of the animal itself uh, and the way um, it is handled and prepared. And to the question of did Jesus steal that colt, of course it's no. And for the most part, I mean that comically. But uh, first century political practice meant that uh, royal figures could temporarily commandeer um, means of transportation such as uh, the mule or the, you know, the horse or, or whatnot, if needed. Now, there is question to whether or not this was prearranged, if, if the Lord prearranged this. Uh, but however you think regarding it, I don't see any theological ramifications that would be negative in believing either or. So I think, I think you're fine either way. I would, I would submit that um, it, it was a symbol of Christ declaring his lordship. And, and that's what all of these situations are. The significance of the cult is Christ declaring his lordship, the significance of it not being ridden, his lordship and his kingship. And, and the, his, his commandeering of this cult, uh, again, declaring his lordship and his kingship. And, and I'll pretty much make that a, a leading point today. And when the application comes around, about half will be description like this and half will be uh, prescription. Uh, further down in verse 8, let's uh, read verse 8 again so we can get a hint at where we were at. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. Uh, this is this is a way another declaration of Christ as Lord. It's, uh, honestly, this whole thing, uh, I think I counted eleven times in Mark eleven one through eleven, that Jesus is 
declared Lord, either by himself or by people. It is a sort of royal homage, uh, throwing their cloaks on the road. If you look at 2 Kings 9, uh, 12 through 13, and they said, that is not true, tell us now. And he said, thus, and so he spoke to me saying, thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. Then in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. It was a, a royal homage to the king. And so again, I say, once again, we see Jesus uh, as Lord and king declared in this scripture. And then there's the obvious one in verse 9. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna is a shortened way of saying, Lord, save us, which would just be save us, essentially. But it also is said with the intention of thanksgiving, uh, because the, the rest of the passage is um, derived from Psalm 118, 25, 26. If you read, uh, you know, it says, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, and then completes again with Hosanna in the highest, which, by the way, is a declaration of him as king, because it is Lord, save us. And so uh, that, that scripture, Psalm 118, save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. And this, again, is the Lord returning to his house. I, I want to move now to the first point of application. Um, it is the, this misunderstanding of the Davidic kingdom. Uh, and I will show you where that is. Um, the blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. What is that even? What is the kingdom of David coming, essentially? Uh, the crowds anticipate the Messiah... Uh, to defeat Rome, sort of almost as a political king. But Jesus' victories were not those over Rome. They were over Satan and sin and death. And so that is why my first point of application, I'll, I'll give you both real quick. The first point is, is simply... Uh, the necessity of living, of, of having a proper concept of Christ as Lord and King. The really, there's only two arrows to my, my bow today. Uh, the Lord is King, and, and this is why you should live like it's so. And I'm finding that's actually the only two arrows I have in all of my sermons, but <laughs> it's almost as if all of Scripture redounds to the glory of God. But, but I, I point out the misunderstanding of the Davidic kingdom because it's, it emphasizes the importance of having a proper concept of Christ as Lord and King. They expected him as a political figure who would, who would overtake Rome and, and be all, all lavish and 
a worldly sense of kingly. But, but he came not to do that, but instead to have triumph over Satan, sin, and death, eternal death. It's interesting. Uh, we don't want to treat them as dumb for thinking this way. Isaiah 9-7, if you look at Isaiah 9-7, this prophecy of the Davidic kingdom, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The increase of his government I mean, it's not that far off that, that they would think this way. I mean, we can see where they get it. Jeremiah 23, 5, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. He's executing justice and righteousness. It sounds a lot like the, the political kings of Rome, or the... the wouldn't be kings, but you know. Sounds a lot like it. But Jesus fulfills the law in an unexpected way. And, and we make ourselves, well, culture today, the church today, makes similar mistakes in our misunderstanding of certain works of Christ and where we expect and anticipate one thing, but it's actually, Scripture says it's another thing entirely. I don't know if you've heard of the prosperity gospel, but it's a, a rampant problem. It is the idea that Jesus died humbly so that we could live in prosperity. They don't have a proper concept of Christ as Lord and King, do they? Because in their head, it's Christ died for what he could give them. That's idolatry, right? If you, if you want a sort of test to see if you have bought into the prosperity gospel at all, which is easy to happen living in the West, if you want a sort of test, let me ask you this question. If all of your prayers today were answered in this instant, would you be more comfortable or would God be more glorified? The next thing, uh, the next main way in which we tend to misinterpret uh, or misunderstand Christ's lordship and kingship is through what is called liberation theology. And I know that's a big, scary word, whatever, but it emphasizes the liberation from social, political, and economic oppression as the main work of Christ on the cross. Uh, you're going to hear more and more of that 
Should we alleviate suffering where we can? Of course. But is the alleviation of suffering the main goal of Christ on the cross? No. Not at all. It, it is not, Lord, can you please take this suffering away from me? It is, how can I, in the midst of it, rejoice like the apostles did? And, and I don't want to get off on a tangent there. I, I, I'm mainly showing you that these misunderstandings of Christ as Lord and King are not even far off within the church. We had a speaker come to the, the school not too long ago um, and, and talk about Christ or, or how we are to be ambassadors of reconciliation. With, uh, but, but he made it as if it was to one another. We are ambassadors to Christ. And, and that reconciliation is to, to Christ. And, and the byproduct of that, yeah, we'll be reconciled to one another. Just as Tozer explained, that if, if each, and, each and every one of you were pianos, you know, you, you do not tune to, how did Tozer say? He said, a thousand pianos in tune to the same fork are also in tune with one another. That's unity. That's reconciliation. So these things might be a byproduct, but they are not the meal. Anyway. <laughs> so there's a necessity of having a proper concept of Christ as Lord and King. And Christ, the, the, what is this proper concept of Christ as Lord and King? It is not even, it is not even, it's not even moral influence, right? He didn't just die to, to have a moral example set with how you are to live, though that he did that as well. The main work of Christ on the cross was that so the Father would be glorified in our salvation from sin and eternal damnation. So, that is a proper concept of Christ and King, or Christ as Lord and King. And, and the, next, uh, the next step, naturally, is um, my second point, that the necessity of, of living out our belief that Christ is Lord and King. We often, though we, we don't like to admit it, we often live contrary to what we say we believe. The atheist does this in his hatred of religion. He lives a sort of religious lifestyle believing anti-belief. But also I've noticed it in my studies elsewhere in scripture. I, I've become a, a very big fan of Ecclesiastes. And, and I notice, you know, if a meaningful life, according to Solomon, is to fear God and keep his commandments, then only the Christian can actually live a meaningful life. 
And even though only Christians can live meaningful lives, it's, it's like, why do we still see so many Christians living with the same nihilism as the world? Right? So, so that's just an example, I'm saying, where we live contrary to what we believe, consciously. So, so what is the first thing to take into account when realizing or when, when coming to the understanding that Jesus Christ is Lord and King? Well, it is to understand that you are not. Joel Beakey said the most basic truth of theology is that there is a God and you are not him. And, and J. Vernon McGee once said, uh, he said, this is God's universe. He does things his way. You might think you have a better way, but you don't have a universe. The largest chapter in the Bible is about a man's undying love for God's word, and it's given rather poetically. So why do we, why do we skip over that and, and focus on Jeremiah 29, 11? <laughs> you know? Why, what is that about, huh? Perhaps it's because our culture has made living for Christ about living for ourselves. And so we want to read things that we can imagine about ourselves, even though context would say contrary. So, so how, how is it that we make ourselves Lord and King instead? Well, there's two primary ways. One is, is in, in justifying our immorality when we do so, because in justifying our immorality, we make ourselves to be God. And even if the object of your morality is not God, but so that you look good, that's still idolatry. And so instead of becoming Christ-like, you make Christ-like yourself. That's one way of, you know. <laughs> the, the other way uh, is, is less your fault. Uh, <laughs> Culture puts a lot of pressure on the individual to do what only God can. You have to create your own moral standard now. You have to create your own truth. And you have to bear your own burdens. Right? So in that, in that sort of way, you're almost forced to act as God within this culture. I, I follow a, a philosopher that I like a lot, and he, he preaches a lot on individualism. Um, you are stronger than things are terrible, he'll say. No. Christ is stronger than things are terrible. And that's the beautiful thing. You don't have to be your own strength. You're strongest when you're not. We, we, if you know Greek mythology, there's the figure of Atlas holding up the world. And that is how I view a lot of you. <laughs> it's how I myself felt even when writing this, ironically. 
Like, I have to create something, and I'm a delivery boy. You know? I'm an employee. I'm not a free agent. And we're the same way. We're trying to hold the world, and then we wonder why so many people, Christians, are crushed by it. Why are so many Christians crushed by the weight of the world? They're trying to hold it. So there's a necessity to do exactly what this scripture does many, many times and establish Christ as Lord and King over your life and to live accordingly. To close out, I do want to read um, hymn number 300. I'll just read it. It is all glory, laud, and honor. All glory, laud, and honor to thee, Redeemer King, to whom the lips of children made sweet Hosanna ring. Thou art the King of Israel. Thou David's royal son, who in the Lord's name comest, the King and blessed one. The company of angels are praising thee on high, and mortal men in all things created make reply. The people of the Hebrews, with palms before thee went, our praise and prayer and anthems before thee we present. To thee before thy passion, they sang their hymns of praise. To thee now high exalted, our melody we raise. Thou didst accept their praises, accept the praises we bring, who in all good delightest, thou good and gracious king. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, um, we thank you for this day. We love you very much, Lord. I pray those who have ears to hear, Lord, that they will listen to what the Spirit says through your word. Thank you so much for each and every individual in this room and the way you're working through them. Thank you for their, your providence in their life, Lord. And give them strength as they go about their week. Amen. Isaac, thank you for sharing with us this morning. And it is a privilege to be able to celebrate Palm Sunday with you. Uh, next Sunday, we do have some extra uh, worship opportunities. We're going to start at 7 o'clock. I know that's early. It's a lot easier to see the sunrise in the morning at 7, though, so that's why we're going to do that. And uh, anyways, we'd love to have you guys come join us for that. 7 o'clock, it'll be outside. Uh, they're saying it's not going to rain, which will be a beautiful thing, and we'll hopefully be able to see the sun come up. So thank you for being with us this morning. Isaac, I will ask if you'll go out that way so that we can uh, have people shake your hand as they go by. Uh, we do still take up the offering here, but we do it as people leave. So if you would like to give, uh, there'll be individuals at each of the doors uh, to receive the offering this morning. Thank you for being with us. Go in peace.